Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. Is it possible that we're learning some of the wrong lessons about American culture from the pandemic? In a New York Times op-ed, NYU sociologist Eric Kleinenberg writes that people tend to talk about an epidemic of loneliness that the pandemic spawned. Kleinenberg says it's really a loss of trust we should be talking about. That theory is part of a new book by Kleinenberg called 2020, One City, Seven People, and the Year Everything Changed. The city is New York. We'll hear about some of the seven people and talk about what changed that we should still be talking about in 2024, trust and other things. Yes, 2020, the year that brought an economic crash precipitated by COVID-19. 2020, the year George Floyd was murdered by a police officer. 2020, the year that President Biden first went head-to-head with Donald Trump. Eric Kleinenberg is also director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at NYU. And again, the book title is 2020, One City, Seven People, and the Year Everything Changed. Eric, thanks for coming on. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And I want to start, even though this is so personal, obviously, to so many people who are in grief and everything else since 2020. Still, I want to start on kind of an abstraction, I guess, with your theory of crisis and what we can learn from it. You write extreme events can make visible a range of conditions that are always present but difficult to perceive. So talk about that theory of crisis. Well, it's, it's the theory that has motivated my work for several decades now. It's the idea that crises reveal things, who we are, what we value, whose lives matter, and of course, whose don't. And so when 2020 started, knowing this, my first you know, very human impulse was to socially distance, to close the door, to take care of myself and my family. But I also knew we were living through something that would be historic. I didn't know how big and how long it would last, but I I knew it was consequential. And so I just started to look at uh, as much as I could. And, you know, in, in fact, I think if we I think we have to look closely at what we experienced in 2020, because we're still living in this kind of you know, long COVID is a social disease. Mm. And if we repress it, that doesn't mean it's not acting out on us. And you refer to a French sociologist theory of anomie, the phenomenon in which spikes in destructive behavior occur during times of crisis. Why is anomie a fitting descriptor for the state of our country in 2024? Well, here we are feeling, you know, atomized, feeling uh, on our own, feeling distrustful. We have become even more skeptical of core institutions, including government, than we were in 2020. And that is saying something because that was not the happiest time even before the pandemic started. Uh, You know, one thing that we see when a society is experiencing enemy is a spike in interpersonal violence. And, you know, it's fascinating, Brian, Countries around the world experienced severe lockdowns and all kinds of traumas in 2020. And actually, by comparative standards, the U.S. hardly did lockdowns at all. It's nothing like what happened in China or Italy or Australia or France. But we got exercised and angry, and we took it out on each other. I mean, 
in the book, I write about uh, those viral videos of ordinary people fighting it out in grocery stores because someone was wearing a mask or someone wasn't wearing a mask. There were cases of homicide uh, over that same issue. The U.S. is an outlier in the world because in 2020, when most societies got more peaceful, we had this incredible spike in violence and not just guns, Brian. We had a spike in reckless driving, in vehicular manslaughter. It's like we stopped taking each other and each other's well-being into account at the very moment when what we needed to survive was solidarity. So, for example, along these lines, one of the seven New Yorkers you profile is Daniel Presti, owner of a bar on Staten Island. Uh, and the story, as you tell, tell it, shows us how a once apolitical bar owner on Staten Island became radicalized by government mandates and a lack of support from the government. So tell us some of the Daniel Presti story and how it fits into that theory of anomie. Yeah, so Presti was a bar manager in a new establishment called Max Public House that had just opened in Staten Island at the end of 2019. And, you know, it took the New York liquor authority, the state liquor authority, almost nine months to get him his liquor license, and he couldn't figure out why. I mean, the authority exists, you know, to make sure that these businesses can operate safely. What what, what took so long? By the time they finally opened, uh, it was the slow season, and then COVID happened, and they got shut down. And his original idea with his partner was to have a neighborhood establishment where people could come and just get to know each other better. It's, you know, uh, kind of hitting a social need that we all have, right? To be together face to face, to gather and convene. And what happened over the course of the year is he felt like he kept getting shut down and had his business operations restricted. He tried to get meetings for you know, different agencies to find out what would happen next, when he could open, and he couldn't get anywhere, and he, he, everything was falling apart in his business. It had all kinds of personal effects. He got anxious about it, and at some point, Presti and his partner decided, you know, we're, we're, we're going to fall apart anyway. We might as well take a stand. And they turned their bar into what they called an autonomous zone. Uh, and, and that wound up getting the attention of, you know, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, uh, the, the right-wing media, then protesters on the right, including the Proud Boys, you know, came to Staten Island. I, I learned about Presti from from watching videos of the scene at Staten Island. You know, here it was in New York City, and 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 you know what I what I came to learn is that Presti actually is quite like millions of people across the country who found in 2020 that. This feeling that they were, not that they were lonely, but that they were on their own, that there was no one really to give them the hand that they needed, uh, despite the stimulus checks, uh, despite the the support that we did provide, millions of people felt like they, they didn't have what they needed to get by, they were terrified of their future, and the reality of America in 2020 is that many uh, political leaders on the right spoke to people like Presti. And, uh, you know, I I tell his story in the book uh, not to advocate for him uh, or his position, but to humanize that part of the experience, which was really important for America. Listeners, if we have a kind of social or cultural long COVID in this country here in early 2024, as our guest Eric Kleinenberg says we do, what do you think the symptoms are? Give us a call, 212 433 WNYC 212-433-9692. An epidemic of loneliness, an epidemic of loss of trust, 
what else? Or ask Eric Kleinenberg a question, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. You can even call, if you're one of the seven people he profiles in his new book, 2020, One City, Seven People, and the Year Everything Changed, 212-433-9692. Now, Daniel Presti was the lead character in the New York Times op-ed that was a little adaptation from the book. Mm -hmm. And that's where you laid out the theory that people like the Surgeon General of the United States, Vivek Murthy, talk about an epidemic of loneliness being um, the main cultural um, impact of the pandemic. And you say, no, it's not loneliness. It's loss of trust. Make that contrast for our listeners. Well, the, the Surgeon General... I think has good reason to be raising concerns about loneliness. It's clearly a, a serious condition that millions of Americans suffer from. That said, I don't think there's really good evidence that we're in an epidemic of loneliness. There's clearly not evidence that Americans are lonelier than ever. There was a little spike for some for some parts of the population in loneliness during the lockdowns, but since 2020, levels of loneliness have plummeted across the population. That you know, the, 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 trip, the problem is we're still stuck in this feeling like something is off. And I think the reason is not because we're lonely. It's because we're, we're what I call structurally isolated. We, we feel like we're, we're on our own. And uh, a, a number of people who I profile in my book with very different experiences, very different politics. There's a, a profile of someone in every borough in New York in this book. What you get is the sense that when they, when they needed support, when they needed to turn to our core institutions uh, for a hand, they found that they wound up getting slapped. And I think a lot of Americans are living with this. Can, can I just tell you, say one area in which I think this re becomes really clear is yeah. re remember, remember essential workers? Remember that concept? There was, there was a moment when it wasn't just the pandemic, but the economy was in free fall. People were losing their jobs by the millions. The market was crashing. And the government said to us, some workers are essential and their contributions matter and they have to keep going to work. And by the way, that those essential workers were not the finance guys. They were not the, the attorneys. They were the health workers. But then there were all the, the blue collar workers, you know, the, the clerks and the bus drivers and subway uh, custodians and people working in agriculture business, the meatpacking plants. And you would think that calling someone essential would be an honorific and it would come with appreciation. It would come with support, you know, PPE or guaranteed health care or maybe some kind of a, a, a subsidy, a bonus. But in America, to be called essential meant to be deemed expendable. And essentially, we, we, we threw people disproportionately black, disproportionately Latino out into a dangerous workforce and at a moment, it looked like maybe we were going to do something wonderful to support them, like a, 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 a kind of built-up version of the banging on pots and pans at the end of the day for the healthcare workers. Like maybe collectively we would, we would do something. But instead, it's like we walked to the edge of this moral precipice, and then we just turned around and walked back and pretended like it didn't happen. And I think what um, so many Americans are struggling with right now, it's not actually the problem of loneliness. It's the problem of doubting whether we are collectively capable and willing to take care of each other anymore. 
So does this connect to perhaps the story of the New Yorker from the Bronx, who you profile in the book, Sophia Zayas, 35-year-old public servant who also served as Governor Cuomo's Bronx regional representative. You write about Sophia's mistrust of the vaccine, despite her working vaccine campaigns in the Bronx. What do we learn from her? I mean, Sophia is an amazing person. She worked tirelessly through the, the toughest parts of the pandemic. She is from the Bronx. She lives in the neighborhood where she grew up. Her family's there. And she her job was to support the governor's efforts to provide, you know, vital resources for that region during the pandemic. That meant, you know, trying to get PPE and, uh, you know, respirators for hospitals, you know, helping hospitals deal with dead bodies when there were too many uh, for them to handle. It it meant supporting small businesses. It also meant, as the pandemic went on, helping to get people enrolled uh, to take the vaccine. And, you know, Sophia is from a community where there is real skepticism about vaccines because of the history of medical experimentation without consent uh, on black and brown people in the, in the U.S. And so Sophia found herself you know, in charge of you know, organizing these mass vaccination campaigns, which, by the way, the state targeted in the Bronx out of concerns about health inequality, right? The notion was the Bronx got hit really hard in the early waves of the pandemic, and they wanted to make sure they got a high uptake on the vaccine. But she herself, you know, really wondered whether it was safe enough, whether we had enough evidence that it worked. And her story is is the story of someone who's kind of trying to fight through that ambivalence and get on board. And I think that's also, again, to be clear, my point in, in telling these stories is so we get a deeper understanding of this predicament that we're in right now because you know we, we we there are all these ways in which it's it's hard to make sense of the american electorate or new yorkers today like on, on so many measures things are better the economy is kicking again there you know their jobs that we just learned from your interview the, the city budget's not as bad as they say it is there's all these ways in which we're we're back and yet we we don't quite feel it in our bones we act as if the crisis is worse than ever. And, and that's what I'm trying not to help us figure out. And so if you're writing about a crisis of loss of trust, Ross in Brooklyn has a theory on a piece of that. Ross, you're on WNYC with Eric Kleinenberg. Hi. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. And uh, thank you to Eric for writing this piece. It's an important uh, subject to keep talking about, even though I think a lot of people's first impulse is to deny uh, this trauma that a lot of us have been through in the last few years, whether that was just the fear or healthcare workers, what they went through. But I really think a lot of it comes down to the individ- individualization of a collective problem, that this is an impossibly complex problem to navigate. But at a certain point, and especially in 2021, 2022, a lot of us were told to figure out what your individual risk factors are and then navigate based on that, which is really by design kind of impossible to do. It's exhausting, and a lot of people sort of tune out from the the base problem of protecting yourself in a public health crisis, which is still going on. You know, thousands of people are still dying every week from COVID. Um, the COVID express sites in New York, for example, run by the city government, they were brilliant, they worked very well, but they've been shut down uh, because we're all on our own to figure out 
how to navigate this disease, which leads us to a place of kind of giving up. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, I really, really appreciate just coming back to this subject, even though, uh, you know, the pandemic isn't over, but a lot of people would like to pretend that it is, especially because it's convenient for business. Ross, thank you very much. Well, Eric, how much do you agree with that? Very much. Uh, and and I, I want to point out a few things. Uh, you know, first of all, we, we were traumatized, I think, especially all of us in New York City, because during the most difficult time early in the pandemic, you know, we were the global epicenter. Uh, the struggle here was immense, and it was frightening uh, for many people. And, uh, I, and I think the thing about American individualism is that while there's no doubt that uh, we are on the extreme uh, when we compare ourselves to other countries in this way, we didn't necessarily have to respond to a crisis in the way that we did. Because along with American individualism comes a long tradition of American communitarianism, uh, the, the stuff that Tocqueville wrote about you know, t t two centuries ago. Uh, we, are, we are also joiners. Uh, we work at the neighborhood level to take care of each other. And in fact, you know, one of the people I wrote about in the book, Nula O'Doherty, uh, is she, she's a story of the, the rise of mutual aid networks, which proliferated in this city and in many others during the pandemic. And at the grassroots, Americans did amazing things to take care of each other. But I want to point out just how badly we were led as a nation during 2020. And I think it's important since we're in a political year to point that out. There are very individualistic countries out there. Like I, I write about Australia in the book, places that, you know, they have historic levels of individualism that had a right-wing government at the beginning of 2020 that had a prime minister led by a science denier, who's kind of skeptical about all kinds of science. And yet they took the pandemic seriously enough to work across political ideology to form these, uh, government agencies that had people on different sides led by health experts, and they coalesced to build solidarity and trust. Australia is an amazing case because they, they had some skirmishes and protests about lockdowns, yes, but they also had less excess death than they did in a typical year in 2020. Fewer, you know, fewer people died than do in a typical year in Australia, and levels of trust spiked in Australia during huh. 2020. It w we were not fated to go this way. And I think it's important for us to remember the chaos and disorder and dysfunction of the federal government, especially the wild messaging that came all over the place. And you know, r right now you, you can hear on the campaign trail, Trump say things like, are you better off now than you were five years ago? You know, which is not actually the way that, that statement is supposed to go. It's supposed to be four years ago because there, there's no one more than Donald Trump who has such a vested interest in having us forget about what we lived through in 2020. Yeah, Think of it as an aberration. It's really important that we go back and remember and tell the stories of what happened in this country. It's, it's not just the pandemic, by the way, all of these crises, the economic crisis, the, the fights around racial justice and police brutality, right? the assault on democracy. This was a major year in, the, in our personal lives and in the life of our city. And we shouldn't go on without stopping to have conversations about what we went through how it changed us and why it matters. It's interesting that Nula O'Doherty comes up in your book and that you profile her. I don't know if you know, but for our listeners for whom that name might sound familiar and like, where did I just hear that name before? We just gave 
Nula O'Doherty, uh, the Lehrer Prize for Community Well-Being, we call it, something we bestow on this show every year uh, to a few people doing good work that enhances community well-being, and we gave it to her for her work at the Jackson Heights Immigrant Center with Asylum Seekers, uh, knowing nothing about your book. Mm-hmm. So what a what a coincidence. Well, can I, um, can I, can also, let me just say, this is a kind of a, a, an amazing thing that happened in 2020. It's We can tell the horror stories, but we built in 2020 in every neighborhood of the city this invisible civic infrastructure through mutual aid networks that came up as grassroots efforts to help people get food or to get medication or to navigate a complex health problem. And the the Jackson Heights Immigration Center that you just gave this award to four years ago was the COVID care neighborhood network. Literally the the basement of Nula's apartment uh, began its transformation from a, a private basement into a community resource during COVID. And the same set of people who helped their neighbors get through the worst part of this crisis, they're now helping their new neighbors, the new migrants to New York City, file their paperwork for asylum so that they can start the path exactly. towards becoming American. And, and, and it's important for us to remember that part of the story because some amazing and inspiring things happened in this city and in this country in 2020, and that's part of our legacy too. Yeah, and we just told that story on the air of how the COVID care center started in her basement and then she transitioned it to the immigrant center when the pandemic started fading and the asylum seekers started arriving. Let, let me just raise a question about one premise here, that the government left us on our own. I mean, there's this whole other narrative that says the government stepped up during the pandemic in a way that they're now stepping away from but that a lot of progressives especially um, wish would have become permanent. Mm -hmm. So there was the expanded child tax credit that cut child poverty in this country by 50%, according to some studies. Um, That's now expired. Um, There were the pandemic stimulus checks uh, that allowed people to stay home from work and not fall into poverty um, when... uh, when they couldn't uh, go to their jobs and get their usual paychecks, there was an eviction moratorium. Uh, they gave out, you know, the government mailed free COVID tests to anybody who wanted them. And so a lot of the pushback on the right was the government is doing too much to support people and libertarian economics should flourish again. Yeah, that, so that's an important part of the story. It's it's also part of the story of 2020. Not everyone was on their own. Of course, the government delivered a tremendous amount of support through the stimulus checks. We know that they didn't go out evenly or equitably. Uh, Presti's story is important because it's about the struggle of a small business to compete with the cheesecake factories of the world. You all remember uh, that major corporations were able to use their highly professional expert policy lobbying staff to uh, sees more government money than the small businesses were, were able to. So millions of people slipped through the cracks in the stimulus uh, uh, debate. Uh, the Child Poverty Reduction Act is one of the extraordinary accomplishments uh, of that 2020-2021 uh, moment. We did reduce child poverty by record numbers. Uh, but I think part of the reason that so many Americans feel discarded and distrustful 
today is because we turned our back on all those people we supported. We, we, we refused, the, and it's not, we shouldn't say we, it's the right, uh, turn down the chance to extend the Child Poverty Reduction Act, turn yeah. down the chance to rebuild our infrastructure on a massive scale uh, by preparing us for the next set of threats. And so it, it feels, again, as if we started this thing, we made gestures towards creating some new and better world, a new and better, more secure nation, uh, and, and then we stomped it out and went back to things as they were before. And so so I think all of that is in the air. And, you know, here we are, Brian, again, it's, it's 2024. We're, we're facing the same political choice that we had in 2020. We're fighting out over these same things. But my fear is that because we have refused to talk seriously about what happened to us in 2020, about what was made available in terms of social protection and what wasn't. Uh, We've opened the gates for all of these revisionist histories in which people make wild claims about what this country went through. Tiffany in Bayonne, you're on WNYC with NYU sociology professor Eric Kleinenberg, author author now of 2020, One City, Seven People, and the Year Everything Changed. Hi, Tiffany. Hi there. Thanks so much for taking my call, and thank you, Eric, for this uh, important work that you've done. Um, going back to your point about some of the hostilities and horrific things that have happened uh, over COVID, uh, I was a solo female traveler. I drove from uh, New Jersey to Michigan for a wedding, and on my way back through Pennsylvania, I was in a, a Prius with California plates, and I stopped at a rest stop that was also a truck stop. Uh, I masked up. I was the only one with a mask. And as I was walking up to the building, a man with um, uh, right-wing uh, clothing on uh, had a holster on. He unbuckled his holster and sprayed me with um, a Novocaine spray. Um, and um, I ended up uh, becoming very numb all up into my one side of my body mm. and ended up uh, pulling over and calling 911 and being rushed to... Uh, a hospital, and they theorized that he targeted me because I was the only one in a mask, and I was a lone female, and I was driving a California Prius, and he just possibly made assumptions around that, and also potentially was going to follow me and and either rob me or worse, but um, the um, hospital staff in rural Pennsylvania um, suddenly just released me in the middle of nowhere and I had no family. My car was 15 miles away and, and they just said goodbye. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, thank God someone from the wedding, a new, uh, state trooper in Pennsylvania who spent 45 minutes to come and get me and bring me to my car and make sure I was okay. But these are the kinds of things that, you know, and the police took, they didn't get to the scene of the rest stop for two hours. It was terrifying. Um, and I, you know, Maybe not, but it looked like it was politically motivated and that I was masking and this you person. Told, uh, you you know, told our screener the guy was wearing a Trump shirt. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, that's right. He had a Trump shirt on and cowboy boots. And I mean, I, I don't want to stereotype, but he definitely was um, um, pro-Trump. <laughs> well, can, you know, that, that's, such a, that's such a powerful story. And, you know, talk about being alone in America and, and, and left on our yeah. own by core institutions. I mean, it, it really hits there. I, I guess, you know, for me, you, you know, you're, that one, you're raising a point that drives one of the chapters in the book. I try to understand how it is that this, you know, little piece of fabric that we put on our face uh, took on the weight yeah. of all of our political 
frustration and kind of ideological uh, you know, baggage. And it, it's such an amazing story because very few countries had the kinds of feuds like the one you describe over masks. And some people will remember that when the CDC came out in early April of 2020 with the new guidelines that Americans should wear masks in public because we understood that when they were worn properly, they really could protect us. Trump announced that policy in a press conference. And during that announcement, he said, you know, the CDC wants you to wear masks. Personally, I'm not going to do it. And then it became uh, this mandate within his administration that, you know, everyone had to not wear a mask. You bury your face because a mask is a sign of, of weakness and fear. Mike Pence winds up going to the Mayo Clinic of all places and refusing to put a mask on while he's with doctors and patients. He's the only one there. And so then the, 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 the mask becomes a symbol for the right. But the mask, I think it's important for us to acknowledge, also became a symbol for progressives and Democrats. The next thing you know, you know, Brian changes his you know, social media photo to Brian Lair in a mask. His name is Brian, hashtag wears a mask Lair. Uh -huh. We you know, didn't the, actually do that. <laughs> I I, you're describing an archetype. Hypothetically, hypothetically. Yes. But the political candidates, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris start doing you know, advertisements with masks on. A and, and that's all to say that the mask became like a symbol for progressives also. And suddenly, when you do, I, I, I'm guessing some people listening remember that feeling, like you're walking down the street and you're wearing a mask and you see someone without a mask or even worse in a grocery store and you could feel like your blood boiling, you know, all this anger about yeah. what that person's doing. Well, and so we've transformed these things that were neutral, that were health protections, medication, vaccines, masks. We've turned them into symbols of our politics and ideology, and it's very hard for us to deal with the current situation because of that. Tiffany, I'm so sorry that awful thing happened to you in 2022. I think it's important that you shared that story because people maybe learned from it. So thank you for calling in. Um, and Eric, we're over time, but I want to put kind of a punctuation mark at the end of Tiffany's story and your answer, which is that uh, most of the callers on the board, if we were to keep going, would be saying some version of this loss of trust was Trump's fault. It didn't happen in other countries. And if we had had a normal president in 2020, um, you wouldn't have had to write a book today about the loss of trust in the United States over the last four years. In 30 seconds, how much do you think that's true? Well, we know that Trump was responsible for an enormous share of the misinformation that circulated at the time. And we know that many other nations that are like ours took 2020 as an opportunity to bond together and build solidarity and try to overcome partisan differences. They had different levels of success for the long term, but in the short term, they were able to mount a collective campaign to uh, to, to get through it. And the very opposite of that happened here. What we know is during crises, when we're dealing with new threats, people look to leaders to help them get through it. And I think here in the United States, we look to a leader uh, who uh, spit out a lot of uh, bile. And we're, we're still paying a price for that. 
Eric Kleinenberg's new book is 2020, One City, Seven People, and the Year Everything Changed. If you want to see him talk about the book in person, you can do that on Monday, March 1st, uh, March 4th, Monday, March 4th, at 6.30 at the Stavros Niarchos Foundation Library on Fifth Avenue at 40th Street in Manhattan. He'll be in dialogue with Columbia University history professor Kim Phillips Fine. Again, Monday, March 4th at 6.30 at the Niarchos Foundation Library, 5th Avenue and 40th Street in Manhattan. Eric, thanks so much for sharing it with us. Thanks for having me here.